they are losing control of the narrative and they're trying to clamp down. They're trying to take your freedom. They're trying to take your ability to speak. They're trying to take your ability to transact. They're trying to take your ability to access reliable energy. And they're using fear-based arguments to do it. My guest today is Marty Bent. I'm a Bitcoiner. I guess that's what I'm most known for. I founded a media company in 2017, TFTC, Truth for the Commoner. Started out as a newsletter about Bitcoin, teaching friends and family, took on a life of its own. People started sharing the link. Uh, That morphed into a podcast, TFTC, uh, which is an interview series, which you've been on a couple of times. Uh, And then I also do another show called Rabbit Hole Recap. And I'm also a managing partner at 1031, which is a Bitcoin investment platform, investing in companies, building out the the infrastructure that'll help us transition to a Bitcoin standard. All right. And the list of guests you've had on your podcast is just incredibly impressive to me that you you must have learned so much over time. I'm talking to all these people. Jack Dorsey is one example. Yeah. I've been very fortunate to have some incredible guests, Jack being one. Uh, I think the most popular episode this year was with Blasi Srinvansen and beyond that, many politicians have had a couple of presidential hopefuls on the show in the past. Vivek was on. Uh, yeah, it's been crazy. And I think it's a testament to the power of social media, which is how we met, particularly uh, X, uh, which is how I started reaching out to people to get them to come on the show. It's like, hey, we come talk about Bitcoin and other crazy things with me. It was just leveraging the DMs on Twitter. I'm just going to mention a bunch of other guests like Whitney Webb. I'm a huge fan of Whitney Webb. Uh, she's been on your show. Brian Gitt, Dave Collum, uh, Adam Curry, uh, Godfrey Bloom was on my show also. Uh, Edward Dowd, John Constable, Ian Davis, Doomberg, and uh, Michael Saylor of Bitcoin fame. Uh, Chris Wright from Liberty Oil, Bethany Hamilton from uh, Soul Surfer, uh, and uh, Alex Epstein and Will Happer from the uh, climate change slash energy world. I went back and I listened to a ton of your stuff uh, just before this. And it, it is really, your back catalog is very impressive. Thank you. And it's uh, it's just me scratching my my curiosity itch at the end of the day. I mean, Bitcoin, you mentioned a lot of people in the energy sector. That was just me following my natural curiosity as I got further into Bitcoin mining. And when you get into Bitcoin mining, you learn rather quickly that you need to understand energy. Uh you have to have a very good grasp on energy. And so that led me to bringing people like Chris Wright on at the time. I was working uh, at a company, building a company, Great American Mining. We were doing upstream oil and gas flare mitigation, uh, using Bitcoin mining as that flare mitigation mechanism. And so Chris and his experience at Liberty and what they've done um, on upstream oil and gas well pads was extremely it was extremely helpful for me to learn. That was that's sort of the beauty of the podcast. It's I don't I don't want to say selfish, but it is a hack to help me learn when I need to understand a different uh, a particular sector and energy. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of great energy guests on, and then Whitney, Whitney and I have become incredible friends over the last few years. I think the investigative journalism that she has done and continues to do is some of the most important work in the world, and. I just feel extremely grateful that she's out there doing it and that she's willing to come on my show and talk about it every once in a while. Whitney lives maybe, what, South America, Chile or someplace? Yeah, Chile, Far I think. away, but again, it's the power of the internet, right? You probably wouldn't have been able to become good friends uh, without the internet uh, to connect, huh? 
No, that's the beauty of it. Particularly Twitter. Who knows? Twitter definitely had its heyday, which I think was before the 2016 election. Um, but I think it's getting stronger now. And that's the thing. You find these subgroups of people that maybe don't exist in, in the physical realm of your network of friends and family and, and coworkers. And then you find these people on Twitter that um, are speaking your language. And, and again, that's, I'm very grateful for finding these people and then being able to have these conversations with them because I think they're very important. And before the internet, before Twitter specifically, it's unlikely that all of us would have gotten together. You as well. I mean, right. I think you've been on the show twice now and you in the work that you've done to combat the climate hysteria that exists in the world today is extremely important. And I think I found, I started following you in like 2017, 2016, maybe even, and you were, you were out uh, planting the flag when nobody else would, had the balls to actually fight back against this madness. So I'm curious, am I right in that you've been involved in uh, Bitcoin heavily since maybe 2012 or so? Is that right? Uh, like that? 2012, 2013 was when I really dove headfirst into Bitcoin. I was in college studying economics, working at a, a managed futures fund. Um, and at the fund, we were trading currencies. And I was a child of the great financial crisis. I was a senior in high school in the fall of 2008. And just so happened to be taking an economics elective class that fall. And luckily for me, my teacher was of the Austrian purview and really took the opportunity that fall to highlight what was going on in the financial center to make us aware in that class that things were terribly awry in the financial and banking system. And so I went to college with a sort of know your enemy mentality, studied economics. That was my major and always had this lingering sort of fire in the back of my mind that something was systemically broken in the financial system. And I forget exactly what led me to Bitcoin. Maybe it was people talking about the Silk Road or WikiLeaks. Uh, but when I found it, I was working at the hedge fund. We were trading currencies. And part of that job was I wrote the commentaries for the fund. And so I had to follow all the central bank tea leaves and none of what they were, nothing of that they were doing made sense to me. It was in the heat of QE2, Operation Twist. And I was asking chief investment officers of large funds. We were a fund of funds. We index other funds. And so I corresponded with a lot of chief investment officers of the funds that we were investing in. And I was asking them simple questions about monetary policy and they were sort of hand-waving it away. And it never sat well with me. And then, yeah, when I discovered Bitcoin, I forget exactly what it was, but it was around 2012, 2013. And automatically clicked with me, like this is the solution, the problem that we have in the world, particularly the world of money is the central control via the central banks and governments that can just print it out of thin air and really disrupt the free market economy. So in those initial years, uh, do you think that uh, climate hysteria was used a lot to push back against Bitcoin or is that more in the last few years that's become a stronger pushback? That really picked that? That really picked up uh, probably in like 2018, 2019, I think, because up until... 2017, the, the mining industry wasn't as mature uh, as it is today, obviously. And more importantly, the, the hardware that people were leveraging wasn't as energy intensive. The amount of hash rate on the network wasn't uh, as immense as it is now. And so I think as the hardware got uh, more advanced, 
consumed more energy, produced more hashes, and more people started plugging in more miners. In 2018, 2019, that's really when people started pointing uh, to Bitcoin and being like, well, this is using too much energy. There were a couple of instances that were really tremors predicting this larger trend of people lambasting Bitcoin because of its energy usage, particularly in Canada with Hydro-Quebec, which kicked out a bunch of Bitcoin miners, I believe, in 2016, um, which was a terrible decision on their part. But that the climate hysteria around Bitcoin did start probably around like 2015, 2016, but it was a bit isolated. It's definitely heated up uh, in 2018, 2019, and then 2020, 2021 is when um, everybody really pulled their knives out and tried to destroy Bitcoin with an energy narrative. But the energy hysterics don't have a leg to stand on. And um, it's becoming pretty clear to people that Bitcoin is a massive benefit to energy systems globally, whether that's off-grid or on-grid. Yeah, I listened to uh, both your uh, Happer episode and your Epstein episode, and both of those guys, I thought, did a really good job of, of providing the facts and uh, there's nothing to worry about. Bitcoin mining doesn't cause bad weather. Uh, I think they did a great job. I, I, it's a good thing that you're exposing them to your audience. Are you getting any feedback from your audience where they're starting to come over to uh, the climate realism side? Yes, definitely. And that's I think that's the beauty of TFTC, particularly the podcast, is, again, me scratching my own curiosity and recognizing like with the Bitcoin world, particularly the Bitcoin podcasting landscape, it's uh, a lot of Bitcoiners talking amongst themselves. And I think two or three years ago, I made the concerted effort to begin branching out to tangential communities, if you will, that align with Bitcoiners on a lot of things, but maybe don't quite grok Bitcoin and decided, hey, why don't I just have conversations with people fighting energy hysteria, with people doing really good investigative journalism, with people who are fed up with the financial system but may not grok Bitcoin um, and just let them know like, hey, we're picking up what you're putting down. We agree with you. And we think what we have over here with Bitcoin uh, is an incredible tool to fight back against all this madness. Oh, um, I would like to talk more about Bitcoin on this podcast, but do you want to start off uh, for my listeners with a little bit of Bitcoin 101, just the very basics for a couple minutes, maybe? Yes. Um, where do you think we should start with Bitcoin 101? How the network uh, works, the monetary well, policy? I, I heard you talking about dividing it into two parts, the token and the network, maybe a little bit about that. Yes. Um, so we'll start with the token. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto... Released the white paper October 31st, 2008. Said, hey, I've been working on this peer-to-peer -peer distributed cash system with no trusted third parties. There was a discussion on a mailing list for the next two months uh, where Satoshi really uh, opined on why he's launching Bitcoin into the world. And he made explicit uh, references to central banks and governments not being able to uh, protect the purchasing power of their currencies due to the amount of trust involved with fiat currencies. Uh, they are cursed because they will always be debased. If you have the ability to manipulate uh, interest rates and the supply of money, eventually um, central banks, central planners will take that option and manipulate the monetary supply. And Bitcoin 
is a reaction to that central planning in monetary systems. And so what Satoshi launched on the token side was this digital cash, Bitcoin, which is the token, uh, that has a hard cap supply, 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, and the idea is that since the token is extremely scarce, it is a complete, um, complete other, it's an alternative to the fiat monetary system where central planners can just print at will. Instead of being able to pr print at will, you have this hard cap supply. Now we get into the network side. How's that hard cap supply actually enforced? It is via this distributed network of full node operators in the mining system that facilitates transactions. Uh, to change the supply of Bitcoin, you would have to get all these individuals running the full nodes to agree to change the supply cap, which is extremely unlikely to happen because people are downloading full nodes and plugging in miners because they all believe that Bitcoin is worth accumulating because it is scarce in the first place. And so you have this network now with a very scarce token uh, that you can have a high degree of confidence won't be debased moving into the future. So put simply, Bitcoin 101, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Central banks and governments are never going to stop printing money uh, and they're never the amount of censorship within their financial system is only going to increase as they lose control of narratives and um, uh, over the social order. And people need an exit from that system. And Bitcoin is that exit. So I think that's the most simple Bitcoin 101. It's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, it's extremely hard to change the supply cap. You'd have to get tens of thousands of individuals around uh, the world to agree to debase their money, which is unlikely to happen. Uh, and then central banks and governments aren't going to stop printing money. And so you have this alternative uh, vehicle through which you can store your wealth over time. I think when you brought up this point with Alex Epstein, he pulled out a hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe bill to talk about uh, the debasement of currency. That's yes. a pretty good visual. Yeah. Yes. And it's happening. I mean, you look at it, um, Argentina, obviously Javier Malay's taking over. Uh, he said a couple of weeks ago, eliminating the central bank is a non-starter. Looks like they're going to do that. They're going to dollarize, which um, we'll see how that goes. It's certainly better than the Argentine peso, but the dollar is controlled by central banks. Uh, at the end of the day, if you look over to Turkey, they've had ex extreme uh, hyperinflation, obviously Venezuela, um, Lebanon in recent years, Nigeria as well this year, Nigeria's Naira's, the value that's been cut in half this year alone. Um, and so that's the long-term thesis too, whether you want to call it the dollar milkshake theory or just pure monetary economics, the weaker currencies will fail first. That's why we see the peso go, the Naira go, um, the Lebanese lira go, uh, and eventually the dollar because it is centrally planned by central banks and the federal government here in the United States, it'll it'll meet the same fate. Um, so my thesis long-term is eventually people recognize that and see Bitcoin sitting here with this hard cap supply, this distributed system, um, and make the logical decision like, hey, this is a better money. We're going to adopt this. And I think we're actually seeing that play out in real time right now. Yeah, and some people might be seeing a looming debasement of currency in the future, and they might go to gold. But then you do have a problem if you have to flee bringing your gold with you without people taking it, right? That big problem there. Yeah, there's that's one of the problems. There's multiple problems with gold. 
I think gold's physical nature is the reason why fiat currencies have been so successful over the last century. Um, so if we go back to Executive Order 6102, I believe it was 1931 or 1933, here in the United States, basically the government confiscated everybody's gold uh, or tried to and didn't get everybody's, but they got a good amount of gold and they centralized it in these vaults and slowly but surely over time, they issued notes on this gold uh, and they were issuing more notes in the gold they had in reserves until eventually it got to 1971 when France and Germany, I believe, uh, dis- decided they wanted their gold delivered back to them from the vaults in New York and Nixon had to essentially rip the world off the gold standard officially uh, because they didn't have the gold at the end of the day. So the physical nature of gold and the ease of which it could be centralized in vaults that are controlled by governments puts it at a disadvantage. And then on top of that, um, as you mentioned, like it, it's physical, it's got weight. So if you're trying to do large international financial transactions with final settlement and you want to deliver that gold, that comes with a lot of cost, a lot of risk. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, obviously, throughout history, there's been a lot of bunk gold out there, um, mixing gold with tungsten, and it's hard to validate if you receive a gold coin if it's actually gold and not a mixture of metals with some gold coating on it. Uh, and then if you juxtapose that to Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is weightless, it's digital. Uh, if you're running a full node, you can validate using software that the Bitcoin you have in your wallet is actually Bitcoin that the network recognizes, it's much easier to validate. Uh, it's much easier to send internationally instead of putting a thousand pounds worth of gold on a plane and shipping it from here to the Middle East to settle a large oil transaction. You can simply broadcast a transaction to the internet via the internet uh, from your mobile phone if you wanted to. Uh, what do you say to people that we should stay, when they say we should stay away from Bitcoin because you can uh, pay for illegal things or you can, uh, <laughs> criminals can use it? What do you say to that? Well, they should, you should stay away from the dollar as well then too, because that is the uh, the currency of choice for most criminals around the world, particularly the U.S. government. <laughs> good, good answer. That's what I thought too. Um, I was curious, um, talking about Bitcoin mining, you actually are involved in Bitcoin mining, right? Uh, using uh, natural gas, for example. And- yeah. So I was part of the founding team at Great American Mining, where we were doing flare mitigation uh, in the Bakken, predominantly in North Dakota. And so we would essentially find oil and gas producers that had a flare problem that was preventing them from either drilling oil or sending gas down a pipeline. And we would come and say, hey, you don't need to flare that gas. Um, because we can come uh, pipe that gas into a generator, produce electricity, and then mine Bitcoin with it on site. Um, that company got acquired by Crusoe Energy, uh, I believe, at the end of 2022. And um, so, but I'm still in the mining industry. Uh, I do do some off grid gas mining. It's a bit different than what we were doing at Great American Mining, though. Uh, I have miners located in Appalachia, which are leveraging stranded wells. So it's a it's a different than the flare flare gas mitigation. Where up in Appalachia, they had a bunch of shallow oil wells, uh, and they went drilled the wells, got the oil out, and it was never economical to build pipelines for the associated gas to bring that to market. So there's thousands of stranded gas wells just capped and being unmaintained throughout Appalachia and other parts of the country, for that matter. And so that pre- presents an incredible price arbitrage opportunity for me as a Bitcoin miner, where if I'm willing 
to bring uh, a data center uh, to that stranded well. I can talk to the landowner, say, hey, we'll pay your land lease for the year. We'll maintain the well. Uh, just let me use your gas to mine Bitcoin. So that's one of the ways in which I mine Bitcoin as well. I'm also involved in a mining company, Standard Bitcoin, which is doing an on-grid play uh, in the same area in Northern Tennessee, Southern Kentucky. And that's a bit different and really highlights the uh, diversity of energy arbitrage plays within Bitcoin mining. Specifically, what we do at Standard Bitcoin is look for uh, rural towns that have had large manufacturing capacity move out over the last few decades due to globalization. Um, and they have these uh, substations with excess capacity that's not being utilized uh, because that that large manufacturing company isn't there to suck up the energy anymore. And so what we do is we go to the utilities that own these substations and say, hey, uh, you can buy more energy in bulk from the TVA, which will get you lower pricing and will soak up the excess capacity in your substation to mine Bitcoin. So that works for us because uh, we're able to get lower pricing because the utility is able to buy energy in bulk. It works for the utility company, obviously, because they're getting cheaper bulk energy buys, which then they can pass on to residential uh, clients. And then obviously for them, it's more revenue uh, at, at the end of the day as well. And so um, I believe that Bitcoin mining is a mechanism for humanity to become as energy efficient as possible, whether that's maintaining and utilizing stranded gas, mitigating flare uh, when oil and gas is being extracted upstream and then within the grid system to create these efficiencies to make sure utilities um, are making as much, they're, they're taking advantage of as much capacity as they have within them. Does it ever make sense to mine Bitcoin using an intermittent uh, source like uh, wind turbines and make a lot of uh, mine a lot when the wind's blowing and then stop when it's not? Uh, it depends. If you get ASICs for free, yes. Um, so if you're able, it comes down to market timing. Maybe they don't necessarily have to be free, but maybe if you buy older generation mining machines during a bear market when they're dirt cheap, uh, it could make sense to plug them in at intermittent um uh, facilities uh, and hope that when the bull market runs and that energy is producing and you're mining, you're going to get payback on your machine and then take some profit. But um, for industrial size mining operations, I don't think it makes sense in the long run, uh, particularly if you're depending on intermittent sources like wind and solar, which are dependent on subsidies at the end of the day. If those subsidies run out uh, and they're not subsidizing your cost of energy at some point in the future, it could make your operation uneconomical. Well, I saw that there was something advertised for a space heater in your house, where if you need a space heater, heater anyway, you could have this Bitcoin uh, mining uh, space heater. But uh, it sounds like that may not be worth it ever uh, financially, well, or is it? Yeah. It could be worth it. It depends on what your residential uh, cost per kilowatt hour is. And so the, I guess it's an arbitrage play too. Or So what you would do is plug in a miner and then there's – companies creating 3D printed uh, space heater uh, skins that you can put on your miner and it helps with the sound and uh, really pushes the heat in an efficient way so that you can cool your house and when you or warm your house, excuse me. And so when you do that, um, you don't have to turn on your water heater or your your air conditioning to, to heat your house. And so you just have to run the 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 numbers of if plugging in that miner to produce heat, while not turning on your heater produces 
an, an amount of Bitcoin revenue that is larger than what your monthly uh, heating bill would be, then yeah, it does make sense. And it makes sense for a lot of people. Um, and we, the reason just released a mini doc a couple of weeks ago, highlighting a spa in Brooklyn of all places that is utilizing Bitcoin miners to heat their pools and their hot tubs. And it's uh, profitable for them to do that as well uh, in the middle of New York City. Okay, very interesting. Uh, order of magnitude, about what percent of U.S. energy uh, electricity usage is uh, spent on Bitcoin mining? Is it like 0.1%, something like that? Yeah, I, I think the numbers globally are around 05, 0.05 to 0.1%. And I would... I don't know the exact percentage here in the United States, but I think it would map, um, the ratio would map globally uh, here in the United States as well. So yeah, probably around there, 0.1%. I think it was one of the guests on your podcast that had this interesting uh, historical observation that in the past people said we shouldn't use email because it uses too much energy. We should just stick with the postal service. I never heard that. Uh, streaming movies also, they use too much energy. And elevators back in the day, they said we shouldn't use them either. Because of the energy use, that surprised yeah. me. Refrigerators, washing machines, washing machines consume, I think, something like something like a hundred x the amount of energy that Bitcoin miners do. You don't have to uh, use a dryer to dry your clothes. You can't use the air, um, and so it is a bit perplexing to me why we're not browbeating anybody who uses a dryer for not hang drying their clothes, um, considering the amount of energy that dryers use. But don't you think the real reason, though, is because the uh, the dryers uh, don't they don't threaten central bankers? Maybe that, <laughs> yes, that's why. Yeah, that's that is exactly why, and that's the uh, that's the big battle that Bitcoiners have been fighting over the last few months or a few years, excuse me, particularly is highlighting this uh, moralization of energy usage doesn't make sense from first principles, and then um, really highlighting at the end of the day whether it's climate hysterics or governments pointing and politicians like Elizabeth Warren pointing at um, Bitcoin's energy usage, they really don't care about the energy usage at the end of the day. They care that Bitcoin is a threat to their control over individuals at the end of the day. And their biggest lever of control over individuals is the monetary system. Money is arguably the most important tool that we use. Maybe after energy, you can't really do anything throughout the economy without energy, but after that money, if you want to do things, transact, um, you need money. And then you could actually make the argument to get the energy systems up. You need money first to do the capital formation and, and trades to get all that infrastructure set up. But I think energy and money are uh, very, uh, very close in being the most important tools that we leverage as humans. And if you have control over one or both of those things, you, you have control over individuals at the end of the day. And um, the government and central banks have very fine control over the money right now. And Bitcoin is a direct threat to that control and it, it scares the hell out of them. I mean, speaking of that control, just we've had some dramatic real world examples, right? With the Canadian truckers and people donating to to them, getting their accounts frozen. Nigel Farage getting debanked because he, what, he said the wrong thing. I heard possibly that was due to his uh, climate uh, pushing back, climate skepticism. And you can get debanked over that. I mean, uh, I think it's... Uh, I think that has woken a lot of people up. The whole Canadian trucker thing, that uh, made the light bulb come on over my head. Hearing about yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, and then the there's a, a number of examples. The, the SARS movement, it was a women's movement in Nigeria a couple of years ago. Anybody who was protesting in the streets had their bank accounts cut off 
overnight and they turned to Bitcoin rather quickly to accept donations. Similarly, Canadian truckers, same thing. And uh, Nigel Farage, you had, and then you had the other problem with like censorship and um, uh, trial by public, uh, public opinion with people like Russell Brand, who was completely demonetized from, from YouTube and other platforms um, for accusations against him. Um, he was guilty until proven innocent and demonetized until he's proven innocent. Um, so yeah, whether it's the governments or large corporations uh, that donate a lot to the politicians that run these governments, they're they're making pretty aggressive moves to try to uh, beat people in line and say, hey, get on with the narrative or we're going to take your access to money away. So um, how is it going? Is it El Salvador? Is that the one country that's using Bitcoin the most so far? That They've officially adopted it as legal tender. Uh, and from what I can tell, I haven't been down there yet. I know a lot of people have been down there, but they are uh, El Salvador. I mean, external to Bitcoin has really turned itself around rather quickly. Just uh, funnily enough, if you actually um, uh, convict criminals for their crimes, you can bring a lot of peace to your society. And it seems like El Salvador has done that pretty, pretty, um, uh, efficiently over the last few years. And then on top of that, the Bitcoin narrative um, and the Bitcoin is legal tender is definitely picking up steam. I know a lot of companies that begin to domicile down there because it's a friendly business environment. Um, I do think uh, adoption of Bitcoin is still um, relatively low compared to the dollar within the, the Salvadoran system. Uh, it is a dollarized economy as well. So I think it's Bitcoin and dollars in parallel as legal tender and just because of how early we are in Bitcoin, uh, how far it is to a lot of people. I think most people are still using dollars down there, but there has been significant uptick in Bitcoin adoption. Um, beyond that, from a nation state level, the Kingdom of Bhutan came out earlier this year. Funnily enough, uh, they didn't really want to come out and admit this. They were discovered in a bankruptcy proceedings with BlockFi and Celsius that they had exposure to cryptocurrencies and they essentially their sovereign wealth fund had exposure to it and they essentially had to come out and admit yes we're we're into bitcoin actually we're mining bitcoin using our excess hydroelectric power and not only that we're going to double down and they announced plans to expand their sovereign mining operations by 500 megawatts um so they're deep in the bitcoin game uh rolling it into their sovereign wealth fund uh the kingdom of oman came out earlier this year and announced that they were officially investing 1.1 billion dollars in a mining operation uh, within their country. So the Kingdom of Oman has equity exposure to a, a large Bitcoin miner uh, within their borders. Uh, obviously, Venezuela has been around for a while. They uh, they accept Bitcoin as payment at the government. You can pay for your passport uh, in Bitcoin. And it's pretty well known that the Venezuelan government is mining Bitcoin as well. And then Russia, it's a very poorly kept secret in the industry that they are mining a significant amount of Bitcoin and plugging in a lot of miners as we speak um, to get into uh, this race to accumulate as much of the 21 million Bitcoin as possible. Is a Bitcoin banned in China, but in heavy use, both of those things or no? Uh, China's perplexing. It's like they go back and forth. They ban mining officially, uh, but it seems like in recent months via Hong Kong, Hong Kong has uh, put the flag out like, hey, we're going to be open for business for cryptocurrency companies. Despite the fact that China banned mining in 2021, 
and you had that exodus, mass exodus of hash rate from Chinese borders. It is believed that there's still 20% of network hash rate operating within China. Uh, and then if you're a rich Chinese citizen, you'd be stupid not to own Bitcoin. So I think it's um, it's pretty safe to assume that there are a lot of individuals with China, within China that, that own Bitcoin and hold it uh, outside the purview of the CCP. How is it looking politically in the U.S.? Do you think it's going to be talked about a lot in the run-up to the 24 elections? And uh, are certain states uh, coming out in favor or against? Yeah, both. All around. Federal government, state governments are all positioning and putting together a Bitcoin strategy. Uh, this administration, the Biden administration, does not like Bitcoin. The Treasury, you know, the Department of Treasury, actually last week, I wrote a newsletter about this last night, funnily enough, wrote a letter um, to the, the House Financial Services Committee, um, basically with some suggestions of laws they would like to see passed in regards to uh, Bitcoin companies and software projects. Uh, and these are pretty scary statements from the Treasury. They would like to deem open source software projects and full node operators as financial institutions that uh, should follow uh, the rules of the Bank Secrecy Act, which should be abolished. Um, so this particular administration, it seems like they're afraid of Bitcoin and are really trying to uh, choke the industry here and choke sovereign usage of Bitcoin, um, running your own full node, holding Bitcoin in a wallet that you control. The, the language in that letter um, was pretty aggressive. And then at the state level, uh, you do see uh, jurisdictional arbitrage between uh, the states and uh, how they're positioning New York has banned um, the uh, the banned new mining operations for a period of time while they do some discovery. Uh, New York also has the bit license, which is uh, an extremely burdensome regulatory license to to acquire. Uh, and it, it is the reason why a lot of Bitcoin companies here in the United States don't do business in the state of New York is because of this bit license. They've been very aggressive uh, against Bitcoin. States like Texas, where I'm living, now, they're very open to Bitcoin. Obviously, the mining industry is massive down here. I think Texas probably has the largest percentage of hash rate of one um, one jurisdiction globally right now, which is great. Um, uh, North Dakota, Tennessee, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri. Uh, these are all states that are um, positioning that like, hey, we like Bitcoin. We like mining. We want to make sure that our citizens are are able to use it. Florida obviously banned CBDCs within their uh, their borders, and they're uh, talking about making it so their state chartered banks can bank uh, cryptocurrency companies, Bitcoin companies, if the federal government decides to cut them off um, from the banking infrastructure here in the United States. And so, yeah, we definitely do have. Um, different posturing from different levels, whether that's federal or between the states as well. So I'm just going to re read this whole uh, related tweets because I think it's important. I get your impression of what you think. Uh, interest alone on our $34 trillion national debt now uses up almost half of income tax. Add in $2 trillion deficits and it's closer to 80% of income tax. That's not even counting soaring debt costs as old cheap debt is replaced by most expensive federal debt in decades. It's a runaway freight train. Any comments on that and uh, where we're headed in the next couple of five years, whatever? Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Like the 
you United States federal government is absolutely addicted to debt. It's put itself in a situation that it's not going to be able to get out of. The it's it's simple math. The sovereign debt crisis here in the United States uh, is just that a crisis. The ramifications of that crisis. Who knows exactly when they will manifest, but they will manifest at some point in the future. Um, we it just seems like we're in the prototypical end of empire stage where the government prints a bunch of money, uh, passes a bunch of draconian laws, begins to infringe on civil liberties, and the debt is the glaring alarm bell in the corner that many people in the government don't want to recognize. But yeah, the, the numbers are insane. The amount of debt that we've added this year alone via treasury issuance is phenomenal, right? more than $2 trillion, and it, it seems like it's only going up uh, as um, the Federal Reserve keeps rates as high as they are, they need to print more money. And then on top of that, you have the situation where, particularly because of the sanctions we put on Russia in the wake of uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, you have internationally countries, not only the sanctions, but most importantly, the freezing of their treasury assets. You have other super uh, economic powers in the world recognizing the U.S. and their willingness to basically pull that lever of central control and cut anybody off from the system and saying, hey, we need another option. Uh, this is not, uh, this is a risky endeavor to continue pouring a bunch of our our country's reserves into U.S. treasuries and think you just click a button and cut us off from them uh, at a moment's notice. And then on top of that, you just have the amount of debt growing at such an accelerated pace. And then because of where interest rates are, the interest expense on that uh, debt rate rising just as quickly. And then on top of that, we have, I believe, a third of uh, the overall treasuries that have been issued need to be rolled over in the next two years. And so if the Fed doesn't reverse their interest rate policy, that's just going to be um, $20 trillion, or excuse me, one, $10 trillion, $12 trillion, whatever it is now, of debt that's refinanced at much higher rates, which is only going to exacerbate that interest expense on the debt problem. Um, and then unfunded liabilities, social, social Security, Medicare, all that stuff. That's those unfunded liabilities, $220 trillion that, that are unfunded. When you put those numbers together, people focus on the $34 trillion in debt, but the unfunded liability problem is $220 trillion. <laughs> These numbers are astronomical, and they would have been on literally unfathomable a century ago. Um, and here we are today. And if you just do simple math, it's impossible to pay back without a default in one way or the other. And the government has two ways to default. You can do an overt default where you say, hey, we can't pay this back. Put your tail between your legs and walk back into the quarter. Or you just debase the currency, which seems to be what they're going to do, a soft default uh, via debasement. Well, how would that play out in real life then? Just a factor of 10 inflation at some point from here? or Yes, that is an issue more treasuries, pay off the debt, um, increase income taxes, try to take money from people, and they react to that and try to protect their money, uh, unique ways taking it offshore. Uh, and then, yeah, the, eventually when something breaks within the banking system, when the federal, if the Federal Reserve holds rates high for long enough, some, there's going to be a liquidity crisis in the banking system, and you're going to have something 
like what materialized in the beginning of this year, where you have a situation where banks don't have the money to service withdrawals and they're either going to fail or be bailed out. And it's going to get to a point eventually where they're going to bail them out because they don't want the social chaos that would ensue if they didn't. Uh, and that will come with lowering of interest rates and expanding the monetary base um, to an extent that pales in comparison to what they've done uh, to up to this point, like in 2020, when they printed three, $4 trillion, that was unfathomable. If you think that was unfathomable, just wait until they have to fix the the liquidity problem in the banking system. Um, they're going to have to print tens of trillions of dollars over the next decade, I would imagine. You think that involved them saying, uh, we're going to throw out the old system and here's our new CBDC system? It's certainly an option they're thinking of. It's interesting. The CBDC conversation is interesting. You get different posturing from different um, different people within the government, Jerome Powell and many other Federal Reserve Board members come out staunchly against the CBDC, but then you have Elizabeth Warren coming out and saying, we need a CBDC. And so I think that um, is the biggest hurdle to getting to a CBDC is those people getting aligned in doing it, but um, they could definitely do that. But I think the CBDC is already here in a way, like what we described earlier, like being able to freeze um, truckers' bank accounts, being able to freeze WikiLeaks's bank accounts over a decade ago, being able to freeze Nigel Farage's bank account earlier this year. Like that is essentially what you'll get with the CBDC. So CBDC is just repackaging what we have already. And maybe the the only quote unquote advantage of it is that it's running on more uh, efficient rails that can be even more finely controlled by the government. They can they can see exactly what you're purchasing and uh, account for that on the back end and decide like, oh, you've bought too much steak uh, this week. You go to the supermarket and you try to buy a steak and your card says no. Uh, CBDC says your your meat intake has, has reached its limit this month. So you're going to have to put this back on the shelf. I was just going to ask you about that, that you've been working with local beef, uh, beef farmers, right? To uh, maybe buying direct, buying half a cow, things like that. Getting yeah, them involved sh- in Bitcoin too? Yes. Wow. Uh, shout out to Texas Slim, um, who runs the Beef Initiative. Started down here in Texas and his um, anchor partner in the Beef Initiative is Cole Bolton, who runs a cattle ranch here in Austin, KNC Cattle. Uh, and the whole idea of the Beef Initiative is to really get people back to the source of the seed of their food, um, really leaning into knowledge around food systems and what is actually nutritious and supporting local farmers, most importantly, who need it. And the best way to support them is to buy direct for them. So that's something that we've been doing down here since we moved to Texas uh, two years ago. Uh, it's going out shaking ranchers' hands, whether that's coal at KNC, um, Richardson's Ranch, um, which is outside of Austin, uh, uh, Shirt Tail Ranch, where we get our eggs. Um, and yeah, it's very important uh, for us as a family to go do this because the food, number one, is better supporting these farmers. And they're up against a big fight, which is uh, the the large slaughterhouses and the, the food industrial complex, which is trying to centralize everything. And so uh, bringing this back to Bitcoin, I think that's, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about reaching these tangential communities that have similar problems. I think food is an incredible example of that where the food industry uh, is suffering from the 
influences centralization. Um, and there are similar solutions to that problem where you just go to you make it more distributed. And so by me going to the rancher, that's a more uh, distributed relationship than me going to Whole Foods. And um, the beef initiative is trying to educate uh, farmers and ranchers about Bitcoin as well, because they strongly believe that if you're going to do the proof of work to raise cattle, uh, to take them to market, to slaughter them, to package them, to deliver them, that takes a lot of work and you should be rewarded for that work and a currency that respects that, which is Bitcoin. And so part of the beef initiative is educating ranchers about Bitcoin, why it's important and why they should consider accepting it as payment for, for their work and their food. Yeah, when I was on your podcast, you we talked about this. Uh, what else are they lying about? Concept. I think that's a that's a big one for me. Uh, as I said before, I've really woken up. I think because I kind of believed them for a while when they said butter was bad for you and don't eat too much red meat. And there's a whole long list of things that I believe breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Got to eat breakfast early every day. There's a whole long list anyway of things that uh, I believed, but now I'm checking in all of them and I don't believe lots of them. Do you think I'm alone or do you think a lot of people are waking up? Because it seems like a lot of people are waking no. up. You don't think that eating eight servings of bread a day is healthy for you? <laughs> Maybe not. That's blasphemous. The food pyramid says it. This is this is what's good for your body and your health at the end of the day. I believe yeah. in the food pyramid at one time. I did. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Pizza sauce, tomato sauce is a vegetable. <laughs> part of your daily servings. No, I do. I mean, I think, I mean, this decade is going to be, I would not be surprised if in retrospect, 50 years from now, this decade is recognizes the decade of quote unquote, the great awakening. I know uh, QAnon ran with that. And it's like a, uh, a taboo phrase to say, but it is true at the end of the day, you can separate it from QAnon. There is a great awakening in the sense that people are, becoming more aware of how they are just being screwed over at the end of the day, everywhere they turn, um, particularly by their government. And I think COVID, the lockdowns, the vaccine push really accelerated that for people. Um, and I think the government made a, an extremely bad play, particularly with the vaccine rollout, where the narrative and the propaganda around it was so strong for so long. And um, whether... The mainstream media wants to admit that people are recognizing this or not. Like I just know from my everyday conversations with people who did not think like this before are beginning to think like this and they're becoming very skeptical of what the government is putting out there. Obviously, it's not everyone. You still have your psychophants who will believe that that daddy government, nanny, the nanny state is there to help them. But I do think there is a growing number of people that are becoming increasingly skeptical of what the government is doing in their everyday lives, whether it's regard to their health, their food systems, their money. And I think um, something that's really accelerating that beyond uh, the COVID propaganda, the vaccine propaganda is inflation. I mean, people are really getting pushed to the edge uh, due to how expensive things have gotten and people are getting very angry and it's leading us to a situation where you have a, large number of people throwing their hands up saying like, why am I working? What am I doing? I was lied to my whole life. I was told if I went and I got good grades in high school and I got into a good college and I got a good degree, I would get a good job that would allow me to reach the financial status of my parents who were able to buy a large 
house and a second house and multiple cars and go on vacations every year. And that simply is not materializing for millennials and Gen Z, Gen X, actually, the forgotten generation. They're not even getting the fruits of of that lie that was sold to people. Um, and I think inflation will probably be the most effective accelerant of really getting people angry enough to awaken to the fact that they've been duped um, and lied to their whole lives. So from my perspective, um, it looks like Austin, Texas is kind of the hub of freedom right now that you headed down there maybe to uh, partially for the freedom, but Rogan is there, right? And Elon Musk and uh, all sorts of other podcasters are there. It seems like it's really a place where uh, a lot of free speech is allowed and things are happening. Yeah. Rogan's uh mothership comedy um comedy seller i don't know what to go this is comedy store whatever the mothership is what it's called is right down the street it's two blocks away from where i'm sitting right now obviously elon's down here i came down here yes for the freedom i run a business and was domiciled in new york and the state taxes in new york were oppressive and here in texas they're much more um uh, friendly to people operating businesses and then on top of that i'm sitting in the bitcoin commons at the corner of Sixth and Congress. And um, so what I do on the media side and on the venture side, it makes a lot of sense to be here because there's a lot of people starting companies uh, in the Bitcoin industry in Austin. So as we speak, there's uh, 15, 20 people in the room next to me working on different um, companies within the Bitcoin space. And we've got really robust uh, meetup infrastructure in the Bitcoin community down here in Austin. We have at least one meetup a week here in the commons. And yeah, we're able to speak freely, think freely, um, and operate relatively freely as a business. Um, and then, yeah, gas prices are are much lower than they were in New York too, which is good. Do you hang out uh, much in person with the other podcasters? Uh, it's a pretty small downtown. Maybe you just run into people as you're walking around, or no? Uh, haven't haven't hung out with Rogan yet. It's on the list. Trying to get them to uh, trying to coax them to come down, walk down the street, come visit us at the Commons. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, a number like JP Spears. I've hung out with him before. Obviously, he's not doing a podcast; he does skit comedy. But um, yeah, we, it is funny who you run into down here. There's a lot of people in venture have moved down here as well. Um, got eight VC down down Congress uh, on the other side of the river. Um, yeah, it's 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 happened. It's funny coming from New York to here. Uh, it is uh, when I first moved to New York in 2014 um, and really dove into Bitcoin and got into the New York community. I think it was um, very invigorating. There was a lot going on, a lot of action. And I didn't think I would see that again in any other city, but I think Austin has surpassed that just in um, everything that's going on down here. The amount of developers, the amount of companies, the amount of uh, people thinking about this problem are are meeting down here and. Another cool thing is that people will travel here um, just to come talk about Bitcoin and see what everybody's up to. Very good. All right. We're coming up on an hour here. Do you have other points you'd like to make before we wrap up? I think we should echo what we what we said when you were on my podcast last month, which is like, we just need more people to be confident in speaking these ideas and, and pushing back against these oppressive governments and central banks. These people are literally criminals. <laughs> like They are taking our money, sending it into a black box, whether that's the CIA budget, the Pentagon just failed their sixth audit in a row. They can't account for $3.8 trillion uh, worth of the money that they, they've received from taxpayers. 
Who knows how much money we ended up sending to Ukraine. It seems like we just gave up on that war uh, pretty quickly when the war in Israel popped off. Um, and who knows what happened with that money. Uh, you have politicians like Bob Menendez <laughs> literally taking bribes from government officials in Egypt. Uh, the federal government particularly uh, doesn't have a leg to stand on. And it's getting we're getting to a critical point where I do think people are going to have to make a decision, a mental decision. Like, am I going to speak out and fight back against this? Or am I just going to let the state roll over me? Um, the They are losing control, as is evident by the amount of national debt, the interest expense on the debt, the liquidity issues in the banking system. And you can tell they're losing control because of the push for censorship. Obviously, we had Schellenberger and Taibbi on Capitol Hill uh, last week talking about what went on with the Twitter files and the censorship there. And there was a lot of politicians at that hearing that were like, no, what Twitter did was good. What the government did was good. They are losing control of the narrative and they're trying to clamp down. They're trying to take your freedom. They're trying to take your ability to speak. They're trying to take your ability to transact. They're trying to take your ability to access reliable energy. And they're using fear-based uh, arguments to do it. We had John Kerry uh, over at COP 26, 28, whatever it is these days, um, saying that, uh, just saying the same old tried and true, like the climate's going to kill us. We need to do something now. He tried to say that we're going to decommission every coal power plant in the United States by the end of the decade. Like, no, we're not going to do that. People need to speak out. If you're part of that silent majority out there that's listening to this and agrees with everything that Tom and I believe and are seeing right now, uh, like you have to have the confidence to speak out and push back against this. There is going to be a point where civil disobedience, I strongly believe this, and people don't like when I say this, but I do strongly believe it. Like We are getting to a point where civil disobedience will be necessary. People are going to have to get out in the streets and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm going to do something about it. And doing something about it, saying, I'm not listening to you. You don't have control over me. At the end of the day, these politicians really don't have control over you. It's a decision in your mind. You give them control by allowing them to just step over you. Like Freedoms aren't given. They are taken and defended. Uh, and that's what we're doing in Bitcoin. We're taking the freedom uh, to save our money in a sound currency that cannot be corrupted by central banks and governments. Uh, and we're putting it in wallets that we control and we're defending it, saying, no, this is something that isn't inalienable right. I should have the right to preserve my purchasing power in a money that I believe is best for me. You should not be able to prevent me from doing that. Uh, and that needs to expand beyond Bitcoin in monetary policy into things like energy policy. If you're in a state where they're trying to decommission coal power plants, nuclear power plants, natural gas power plants, whatever it may be, get up and say, no, I want the ability to turn my lights on and not pay an insane amount or run the risk of not being able to turn them on because the grid has become so fragile because you've decommissioned all this reliable energy infrastructure. Enough is enough. You are holding, like that is the most frustrating thing as a Bitcoiner right now and how heavily this industry is getting attacked. Bitcoin is one of the most beautiful pieces of technology that humanity has ever come into contact with. And the fact that it's open source software and anybody can build on it is extremely valuable in terms of what you can build and the types of new experiences you can build. And we can go build it ourselves and we are in Bitcoin, but the thought, the thought of all these octagarians in uh, the federal government who want to prevent us from doing 
this to protect ourselves from what they have done over the last decades is infuriating. They have created this massive problem. The governments, the central banks have created a problem unlike anything humanity has ever seen in the course of human history. Uh, and they are preventing, trying to prevent us from saving ourselves. And um, long-winded way of saying, if you're out there, part of the silent majority, speak up. Uh, we need to push back against this stuff. It's getting serious. It could get very serious. We have two, two roads we can go down. Uh, we can go down the road towards digital slavery, where Janet Yellen, Elizabeth Warren have control over your life, or we can go down the world of digital freedom, which comes with trade-offs. Uh, it's uh, it's less uh, it's less convenient than the incumbent world. The government does everything for you, but uh, you get more freedom uh, and autonomy at the end of the day. And so speak up. They're coming for you. They're getting desperate as they lose control. They're only going to get more aggressive and do not fall prey to their fear tactics. That is the only tool they have is fear. Ridicule these people, make fun of them, call out their inaccuracies, call out their inconsistencies. And that is the way we beat them is just by holding up a mirror and saying, you, you people are literally imbeciles. Like I'm not going to listen to you anymore. All right. Very well said. It makes me extremely happy that we have people like you fighting uh, for the, the people. It makes me very happy. So thank you for all you're doing. Tom, likewise, like we said a month ago, it's something, the fact that you launched this podcast and been doing it, others are coming. I think independent media is going to be an extremely powerful and important tool in this battle that that is beginning to become more clear. Um, and so the more the merrier. Thank you for doing what you do and really appreciate you having me on. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Marty Ben. Thank you.